Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. Our topic on the Root Simple podcast this week is about an attempt by activists in Los Angeles to pass a local ban on genetically modified seeds. It's a story with a sudden and surprising ending. Let's be clear that we're talking about seeds intended for farming and gardening, not food, though the story our guest tells took place and involves some of the same people who were trying to pass labeling requirements for foods containing GMOs. To explain what happened to that seed ban effort, my guest is Joanne Poirot, author, teacher, community builder, and the director of a group called Environmental Changemakers. Good to have you, Joanne. Great to be on your show. Thank you. I think we should begin with the quest, a simple question of why, why should we ban GMOs in, in Los Angeles? What, what is the reason we should not have them here? Well, first of all, um, a change in our perspective about GMOs is uh, the direction of the future. Whenever we start talking about organics, organic lifestyles, organic gardening, saving the bees, all of those things are tied up in our chemical load that we have in our agriculture, the chemical load we have all around us, and um, the chemical load particularly in our food supply. So GMOs are all part of that equation, and they're also part of a package that is... I mean, you could call it industrialized agriculture. And um, even the United Nations at this point in time is saying that that's not the direction that we should be moving as a, as a society. And the Europeans, of course, have labeling for GMOs, too, which we, we don't. We tried that in this state, and it didn't, didn't happen, did it? Uh, labeling hasn't passed uh, concretely in any state in the United States yet. There's a tentative motion in some of the eastern, northeastern states, but um, it requires there to be a certain mass of states before it's really a binding principle. Um, in Europe, they have countries where they won't allow uh, GMOs to be imported, so they're actually banning U.S. imports. Um, so. In Europe, they do what's called the precautionary principle. In Europe, they understand that um, they have a principle that things have to be proven to be safe before they can be put into the marketplace. We have the flip side here in the United States uh, where we're saying uh, to these industrialized uh, producers that, well, you haven't proven it to be evil, so therefore I guess you can sell it. Um, That's a very different principle. Now, what would you say to people who say that, well, should you completely ban GMOs? In other words, is there some use for them that you think might be appropriate? I know some people will say, well, uh, in some cases, if you don't use GMOs, then they'll use a, a pesticide or chemical that's, that's worse. You know, are there any ex- exceptions to you, that you would think of for using GMOs? Well, I think that it really comes back to the direction that we wish to take as a society and saying, 
you know, more and more studies are coming out. I'm reading an excellent book on soil science that's talking about the soil biota and the richness of life that should be around us in an ecosystem, in a functional ecosystem. And so as soon as you start to bring chemicals into that and to bring genetically distorted and mutilated uh, organisms into that, that's working contrary to a natural and functioning ecosystem. So at that point, you start to say, at what how does it how does a genetically modified organism fit into that in any way shape or form um also realize that many of the uh proponents of gmos are putting forth statements that are mere publicity statements and have not truly been proven um that if you look at studies with from the union of concerned scientists from food and water watch um they have issued significant numbers of reports that refute these publicity statements that they just don't hold water now, this issue is something, it's a really big issue, of course, and it's one that's kind of frustrating for individuals because it's kind of like, well, what, what am I going to do? Because this is actually an international issue. But for you, you took an interesting approach to it. This became a local issue, and that's what we're going to really talk about today. Uh, it began with a meeting back in 2012 with the Vendana Shiva. Can you tell me what happened when she came here and you met with her? Well, we had Vandana Shiva coming to uh, speak at a, in a big forum, and beforehand, um, her organizer, her U.S. organizer, said, "Well, we have the possibility of a, a small time frame in her in her schedule." And I said, "Hey." we're going to have a working group. She said, what's that? I said, oh, I said, we handpick who attends this meeting. So we handpicked about 25 people from around the greater Los Angeles area. And these were food activists, environmental activists, social justice activists. And we had a private meeting with Vandana Shiva in a small house in Santa Monica. And we talked about what was the direction of the future. And at that point, we were about three days prior to the voting date on the California label uh, labeling initiative. And at that point, it was quite clear that um, the biotech industry was just plastering this state with, um, with publicity, um, you know, false statements and things like that. And we were really not going to win the labeling initiative. But at the same time, if you've heard any of the work of Van and Ashiva, it's all about seeds. And we were about seeds. And uh, particularly a few of us, I'm a gardener deep down, you know, community gardens all the way, organic gardens. And David King is a, the president of the Seed Library of Los Angeles. He was there. Um, and we had several other people who were really devoted to Vanna Neshiva's message and that it all starts with the seed. And so carrying forth with that, we started an organization, Vanda Neshiva's organization is called Seed Freedom. So we became Seed Freedom LA. And um, we said, gee, there's so many things we can do. And Vanda Neshiva really encouraged us to think local. We had several dreams in the, in the start of our little coalition. But um, one of the dreams from very early on was to say, let's make a local GMO free zone. Did that, that was that kind of a group decision that you came up with that idea? Yeah, after a couple of, you know, we had some monthly meetings and things like that. We considered different things we were going to do. Um, and then we started with a grand kickoff party, which we held at the Learning Garden in that following August. And, 
And what happened at that kickoff party? Oh, we had bands. We had a t-shirt artist making these awesome graphics that said GMO free LA. And um, we made garden signs with a stencil, you know, so you could have GMO free gardens. Um, we had wonderful food, um, and we had, uh, we all signed a banner, GMO free, you know, make LA GMO free. Um, we had speakers, um, and at that point we had our local city councilman came down to see what the action was all about. And that was when we really helped him see that this was something that was, um, a multifaceted cause and that there were a lot of people who were very concerned about it. Did you have a conversation with him at this event? And what, what did you tell him and what did he have to say? Well, different people had had conversations with him and with his um, uh, with his support staff ahead of time. But he came and he brought a proclamation and, and uh, made a little speech and things like that. And at a certain point, you as a group decided to get the city to actually pass a resolution, right? Can you tell me about that? We asked um, Councilman Paul Koretz to put forth a motion to make L.A. be a GMO-free zone, a place where you could not uh, grow GMO seeds, GMO plants, um, and you couldn't sell those GMO seeds or plants here either. And this is not an agricultural area anymore, for the most part, Los Angeles County. There might be a few farms here and there. Why, why is it important not just to grow GMO seeds here? And what kind of GMO seeds would we might see in an urban area? Well, remember, this was started by a group of seed savers. And um, one of the things we're realizing within the heirloom seed circles is that our cities very well may be one of the best places to be saving these heirlooms because the buildings actually act in our favor in helping with the crop separation. And so when we're looking at saving uh, heirloom seeds, we really need a GMO-free grow zone, which will help us uh, to do that. Um, Simultaneously with that, uh, Los Angeles has a lot of people who are very concerned with the cultural aspects of corn. And corn is one of the key crops that is being polluted by ge- uh, genetic modification around the world. Um, there's uh, quite an uprising in Mexico about the pollution of uh, heirloom corn varieties, um, cultural uh, of, of cultural value. And so that became also a rallying cry for making a GMO-free zone here in Los Angeles. What about GMO lawns? Uh, GMO lawns, yeah. That's actually one of the first GMOs that uh, we're probably going to see here in this city is uh, the the lawns that are being marketed to golf courses and to parks, uh, genetically modified turf grasses. It's actually being tested in uh, backyards in some other states right now, Um, and there's no licensing required for it, so you would never know if there was a GMO lawn next to you. Now realize that the chemical load on most of these uh, GMOs are created to work in tandem with chemicals. And so uh, there are studies out there, scientific studies, that are documenting that actually chemicals go up when they start using GMOs. Um, in addition, uh, 
it's highly questionable whether that's a good thing for our wildlife. And so uh, organizations like the U.S. Uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife have decided that um, use of GMOs for any wildlife objectives is not going to happen anymore. They signed a memorandum to that last year. Now, back to the attempt to ban GMOs here. You make friends with councilmen, several councilmen, actually, and then he, what happens next? Well, the way that, you know, this is where you learn what how a law gets made in your own backyard. Uh, first, you introduce a motion, which is the city council making the uh, declaration, basically, that they want to make a law in this direction that you're proposing. So we introduced the motion um, in 2013, in fall of 2013, and then it goes into committees where they discuss, okay, is that really what we want to do? Do we want to move in that direction as a city? And the committees all said, yeah, that's fine, or we don't care about it, pass it through. And so in fall of 2014, we came before the city council and they were all, um, yeah, this is, you know, definitely we want to see a law that would create a GMO free zone and all but one councilman uh, voted in favor of it. And so at that point, it goes to the city attorney to actually write the law. Now, you were at this meeting. I've been down there, too. It's a big, marble, very impressive space. Really pretty intimidating, right? And uh, But you must have been really happy. How did you feel that day when it passed and was, was then sent uh, on to committee? Personally, I, I mean, we were ecstatic, obviously, but um, I was also surprised that the opposition did not show up, that we were, all the speakers were basically in favor, um, and that it flew through. We were quite surprised that only one council person voted against it at that point. But also, timing is critical in politics, and the timing of that meeting was the exact same time as there were labeling laws in Colorado and Oregon, so the big guys must have been focused elsewhere at that point. So we didn't see them at that meeting. Um, It sailed through city council at that point, and then it went to the city attorney. And then the plot starts to thicken. So in uh, about September of 2014, uh, suddenly there was a little rider slipped through Sacramento, our um, state uh, legislature. And at the state level, they passed a law that said that people could not Uh, that local cities and counties um, could not regulate seeds at all. That was like the state-level resolution. And so what that would do is say that our whole merry little journey was for naught, except that there was an effective date on that. And the effective date of that state-level legislation was December 31st. If you had the law in place before December 31st of 2014, you were grandfathered. And we said, well, we haven't been defeated. We've just been given a due date. And so we accelerated our efforts to try and meet that time frame. What did you do to accelerate the efforts? Uh, Well, Um, We had people at city council who put a lot of pressure on the city attorney to hurry things up, to write the law. 
um, between mid-October and the Thanksgiving holiday, the city attorney turned a law around and had text for us before Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, meanwhile, the activists um, around town rallied uh, forces all over town. We had grassroots support for this that was extensive. We had um, nearly 5,000 signatures from individual um, uh, citizens who were concerned about this. Um, we had hundreds of phone calls to all the city council people. Um, we had more than 100 letters of endorsement from organizations, small businesses, urban agriculture, health personnel, uh, environmental activists, Latino organizations, uh, very diversified um, portfolio of support. And then what happened? You described it as hitting a wall. Well, then we came to early December. And in early December, the law that the city attorney had written needed to go uh, first through a series of committees, and then it would go to the full city council. And by this point, we already knew we were on deadline. We needed to get this. In order to be grandfathered, we had to get this done before LA City Council went to Christmas holiday. And so the time frame was really short between Thanksgiving holiday and the winter holiday. Um, and so we were pounding it through committees. And one committee after another said, you know what, we waive this through committee, which meant that's their formal way of saying, we don't need to hear it. You don't need to show up at our committee. But then we got to the committee where we had to show up, which was Arts and Parks Committee. And we had already talked to all the city council persons who were on that. Um, different coalition members had gone in to speak with them. Um, you know, I should mentioned through this all that the label GMOs uh, people had been enormously helpful. This could not have gotten this far if it had not been for all of the political activists who were involved in label GMOs. They'd been involved at the state level, involved here locally, and they really piled on board this coalition and pushed this through to this point. And we're visiting council members and things like that. And we had a lot of promises from council members, including people on that specific committee, that yes, they were in favor of this, don't worry, we're with you, all that kind of stuff. And then what happened? And then on, to, on uh, Monday, uh, December 8th, we showed up in the Arts and Parts Committee, and uh, suddenly things were lukewarm. Then we saw the face of the biotech industry for the very first time. They sent a uh, paid uh, attorney that w to read a letter that was full of their propaganda, a lot of it, um, the usual uh, unsupported uh, um, lines that they like to use. Um, and they had several well-known, highly paid activists, uh, uh, lobbyists from uh, the, in the city um, who are known here locally. And these uh, people were in the room. And suddenly the council members were coming up with trumped up questions that we had already gone over with them, that had already been cleared with them, that they already knew the answers to, and some of them that were actually absurd questions, um, but they were putting them forth on the record as well. And so um, our activists went forward and had our, our point in public comment, and their single uh, attorney went up and had his comment and then went back and he took his seat at the back of the room. And um, 
it was plain to see to all of us that he was sitting uh, strategically and within line of sight of the council member, and he was um, gesturing to them as to what should happen. And they basically orchestrated it so that this thing was stuck in committee at that point. And so it could not move forward. And by sticking it in committee, because we needed it in a time frame, it effectively squelched that, that present effort. Why do you think this happened? What was the reason these guys... Now, this is, it should, should be said, uh, Los Angeles, they're all... Democrats, they're supposedly progressive politicians. What was it that stopped it? What was their reason? I guess you say when the big guys speak, um, the politicians listen or something. But, um, you know, across the country, there's documented evidence of how the biotech industry does their work. I do not have any proof of that here in Los Angeles, but it was pretty obvious who was directing the show uh, in that meeting on December 8th. Campaign contributions? Did you look into that? Um, I have not. However, there is an article in the Los Angeles Times where the reporter did look into what how these lobbyists had been involved, and she raised the question, an excellent question, about um, the monitoring of lobbyists here in our city, and that um, they aren't being lobby, uh, they aren't being monitored um, adequately to protect public interests. I mean, we had enormous local grassroots support for this motion and somebody comes in from outside the city and puts their foot down and suddenly it goes against local interests. How right is that? Now, I imagine you were really disappointed. How'd you feel at the end of this meeting? (laughs) Um, Stunned. Um, You know, I, I guess you, you, get a certain number of yes answers and you kind of expect another one. We thought that that meeting would go pretty good. We had expected the one before full city council to experience some opposition. But, um, you know, I've been working with GMOs enough to know that they're going to show up at some point and that's the day they did. So, you know, I've described it to people as feeling like, you know, I was running at 60 miles per hour straight into a brick wall. It was, it was pretty intense. And did you have a conversation with the, the councilman? Do you remember the councilman or councilman or council persons, I should say, on this committee? Did you have a conversation with them or their staff afterwards? Uh, some of the members of the coalition did, and some of those conversations are actually on the record. Um, you can listen to them on the, the uh, tapes of L.A. City Council's meetings. Did you have a conversation with any of the attorneys or lobbyists for the other side there? No. well now this is not the only city that's attempted this right there's a number of cities across the united states that that succeeded in passing bans correct and even some in california here in california um, we have several counties that are declared gmo free zones there's marin there's mandacino county there's santa cruz county um, the city of Arcata is GMO-free zone, and then there's a city, Point Arena, that is uh, GMO-free zone. Um, there's one other I'm not remembering at the moment. but um, So there is precedent for this. There is also precedent outside of our state, but of course, we focus on the ones that are in our state because that has more meaning for politicians here locally. Um, so this is not like a novel position, and obviously it's a position of significant concern to the biotech industry because they went ahead and tried to get and 
put through something at the state level to quit more of us from doing this. One of the members of our coalition, David King, went and found that this identical uh, state level law has been cookie cutter uh, law has been put in place in multiple states across the United States. So basically the biotech industry is going state to state to create laws at the state level, which will um, give them a monopoly and uh, control on our seats. And so the other part of this law at the state level, one part of this law, this, this change that they made to our seed law is that it uh, prohibits counties and cities from making legislation about seeds. The other part is something that looks suspiciously to me like what they are worrying about, um, seed savers in Europe are worried about, which is called a whitelist. Tell me what a whitelist is. Well, you know what a blacklist is, right? A blacklist is where you make a list of things that, you know, we have history of that in the United States of like, these are the guys that we're going to go after kind of thing. A whitelist is saying, these are the things that are allowed. Now, that sounds like a good thing, right? But when it's in terms of seeds, and when we understand like the incredible diversity of heirloom seeds and how significant and important that diversity is that we maintain rich diversity and that not only um, you know, diversity in a seed is not a static concept. It's not a museum piece that's going to stay the same like, you know, say a letter of, written by George Washington or something like that. A seed is a living being. And so it's going to continue to evolve each generation. You can't just put a seed in a warehouse and just keep it there. You have to keep it alive. You have to keep replanting it and regrowing it. And as you do that generation after generation, it evolves and it changes. That's the way that organisms work. And that change needs to continue to happen. Now, if you create a whitelist and you say, these things are allowed to be distributed and sold within this state, and anything that's not on that whitelist is not allowed to be sold. Well, what happens when I, in my backyard, start developing a new variety of tomato or something like that? It's not on the whitelist. It's illegal for me to sell it. You know, that goes against generations of agricultural history. That goes against everything that our ancestors have done and everything that we have been given the responsibility to do as stewards for these heirloom varieties. Some would say this almost sounds like conspiracy theory level stuff. I mean, it just sounds very sinister that you would have such a list. And I know there's a there was a library somewhere. Do you remember the state where, you know the story? Anyway, where uh, they were doing a seed exchange and the state laws actually said, oh, no, you can't, you can't do that. And they came down on the public library. You think we're going to see more of this, this kind of thing? The um, restrictions on seed libraries is a very serious issue. Now, first, maybe I don't know if your listeners know what a seed library is. A seed library is uh, basically, a, usually they're nonprofit organizations where people get together and they say, this is a place where you can go to get seeds. Like the way you'd go into a library and you check out a book, how about you go in and you check out an heirloom tomato seed. And so you go home with your little packet of seeds and you grow your tomatoes with the promise that when you get your tomatoes, you'll save some of the seeds and you'll bring them back to the library the next year. And so this is a grassroots method of sharing 
organic seeds, diverse heirloom varieties, and in most cases, it's free. And this is, um, you know, in this kind of economy, this is very important for us to be able to do this. And so in some other states, and we're starting to see that difficulty here in California, um, we're very worried about this. Um, They're starting to impose Okay, seed laws are written at the state level to um, assure that the consumers get good quality seeds when they pay their money. So that when you go into the nursery center, or more importantly, when a farmer goes to a seed supplier and they purchase seed, it has certain quality levels. So seed laws in each state require certain labeling for percentage of germination. Germination tests were performed that we know the seed has less than a certain percentage of weeds. It's your quality assurance. Well, it's made for the big guys. It's made for the farmer level, and it is enforced upon your local packet size seeds that you'd buy in your garden center. But what they've started doing, and gee, I wonder where this pressure is coming from, um, they've started applying these these, uh, seed laws, misapplying these seed laws to these grass level distribution hubs, these seed libraries. And they're saying to these seed libraries, well, you can't just exchange seeds like this. They need to be labeled. They have to have germination tests. They have to have germination percentages. They have to have, you know, this long list of characteristics, which is completely unrealistic for grassroots distribution and for a, you know, friend to friend kind of exchange like they're doing in a seed library. You think that might be the answer to this, given the the difficulties of, of legislation and, um, you know, doing things certainly at the state or federal level, very difficult to get laws changed. You think there's an avenue of, shall we say, resistance at the grassroots, so to speak, level? Well, what I've heard that they do in Europe, I don't have documentation of this, obviously, is they have pop-up seed exchanges. You know how we get on our electronic devices and we say, here's a pop-up party. Well, they say, show up on this street corner and we'll change seeds. And by the time the authorities get there, off we go, you know, try and catch us, you know, and, um, you know, it starts this kind of opposition starts to make that sound really appealing. um, Because how else are we going to keep the food supply alive? You know, the food supply is an alive thing. It's not something that um, is successful when it is managed in the way that a corporation wants to manage it. And that's part of the conflicts that we're seeing that's gotten, yielded us a very fragile uh, food supply that's in great jeopardy when we look at things like climate change, when we look at things like, you know, the end of cheap oil and, um, you know, all the kind of social strife that we're uh, facing right now that we have constructed an industrialized food system that is um, a very bad idea. And we need to be looking at something very different. Speaking of looking at something different, you've very much been involved on the grassroots level. Can you say a little something about your organization, Environmental Changemakers? Um, Environmental Changemakers started 10 years ago. We were five people sitting in a room looking at each other going, well, we've heard all these dire stories. We know there must be something we can do. And uh, we started out back in the day when People didn't even carry, you know, reusable bags. And that was one of our first things was to remind each other 
to carry our reusable bags to the market and um, that we were going to do that little teeny piece. Another little teeny piece we did in the early days was we declared our meeting place to be a styrofoam-free zone. Um, we had learned about the uh, her- horrible things that happen in styrofoam production and the transference of chemicals when you put hot liquids in styrofoam and how they last forever in a landfill. And we're like, okay, we're so done with that. And so we uh, we changed that and we started telling people about it. And, um, you know, little step by little step along the way in our 10 years, we've built um, a few community gardens. We've done a lot of uh, uh, food growing education. We hosted seed school here. We've uh, helped bring Vandana Shiva to town a few times. Uh, we've done a little bit of political activism and uh, a whole lot of helping people change their minds. You know, they, that's the, the hardest kind of change to make is to help people change their minds about what is really the realistic direction of our future. So we're in the business of changing minds. Um, and so we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary and looking forward to, gee, what's going to be next? I need to get all the websites from you, too, before we close. But um, speaking of change, I want one last question about the GMO struggle is, is there anything looking back on this that you know now that you would have done differently from the beginning or any way different way of seeing this struggle than from when you began? Well, we started out by building a very diverse coalition. But I would say to anybody who's trying this at home, and please do try this at home, um, is build a coalition, especially with people who are not like you. And the sooner you do it, and the richer and more diverse your your coalition, your ecosystem is, the more powerful it will be. I'm working with people who uh, are able to tap into portions of this massive city that I have no access to. I'm working with people who speak languages I cannot speak. Um, this is this is amazing. It is so mind-blowing. And it's, it brings incredible richness to you as an activist to be doing this. But it's uh, also the, the heart of any political movement is to get a lot of different people involved to show this is not a, uni, uh, a, a single issue. This is a very diverse and very important issue, and it's important to a whole lot of different kinds of people. Um, that's very important when you're working in a political uh, forum, but it's also very rich and very rewarding to be working with so many wonderful people around this great city that um, I I wouldn't have met if it hadn't been for this. So if you're trying this at home, um, our website, seedfreedomla.org, has all of our resources. You're welcome to take any of our handouts and use them yourself or copy them right out. There's no copyright on any of that. You know, please do use this for the betterment of this world and for your own activism. We'll have a link in the show notes to all of those websites. What um, What's the Environmental Changemakers website? And maybe say something about your book or books. <laughs> the Environmental Changemakers uh, website is envirochangemakers.org. And I also run a blog at change-making.com. Um, I've written, let's see, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I started all of this environmental journey by writing a novel believe it or not. Um, the novel's called Legacy, and it took a look at what kind of a future we could possibly build if we um, 
got down to work, if we started doing things to fix climate change and, uh, you know, our oil consumption, our consumption, our agriculture, our chemical load, all that stuff. Um, and I'd imagine what that would be like on a roll forward basis. So it follows a set of characters forward and they live through, you know, all kinds of different times. And it's been amazing in these 10 years to see how many of those things have already come true that I just sort of imagined in that book. I also wrote a book that's called Environmental Changemaking. Um, um, that is uh, how to how to do the kinds of things that we've done so that how to build a grassroots organization and get people on board. Um, so it's a how-to kit and includes a lot of a lot of handouts for very everyday kinds of audiences, not not audiences that are made up of environmentalists, but are gonna, um, but audiences that are made up of you know, people who are used to living off of styrofoam and chain stores and helping them to understand a different way of living. Since then, I've been work. I've did a book uh, about uh, the alternative economy that, um, and uh, working on a, a local gardening book as well. Looking forward to seeing that. We'll have to have you back on a Southern California gardening book, right? Uh, yes, but it's all about uh, year-round production and uh, crop rotation and soil building, a lot of principles, and also uh, drought-tolerant food plants. So a lot of principles that apply to many different areas. We'll have to have you back on the podcast when you finish that book. So thank you, Joanne. I appreciate you being on the Root Simple Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. That was Joanne Poirot. The story of hitting a bureaucratic wall in a room full of lobbyists reminded me of a similar situation that took place when I found myself at a Los Angeles City Council meeting with fellow bike activists who were defending a green bike lane in downtown Los Angeles. The bike lane was painted on a street frequently used for filming movies and advertisements. Hollywood objected strenuously. The film industry sent paid lobbyists into closed-door meetings with the council. When the issue came to a vote, those same lobbyists stood at the back of the room, and it was obvious had the attention and ear of the council. The council would not even let us speak. The lanes were shortly thereafter degreened. As to GMOs, let me state my own opinion. I have several issues with GMOs. The first is the overuse of pesticides that Joanne mentioned. It's a problem that in the world of transportation engineering is called induced demand. Build a freeway and more people drive. Engineer a Roundup-ready lawn and use more Roundup, that is, until the weeds become resistant to Roundup, and then you're on a kind of hamster wheel of ever-increasing pesticide use. The other problem I have is with the possibility of what Nassim Taleb calls black swans, unexpected consequences, the unknown unknown, that can occur with highly novel ideas. Humans have manipulated plant genetics for thousands of years, but genetic modification represents a much more novel and hence possible black swan producing development. Lastly, there is the philosophical heart of the scientific revolution that 
in our age shows both its greatness and its deep flaws. Advances in medicine and crop science have alleviated a great deal of human suffering. But this same revolution has given us global warming and the ever-present possibility of thermonuclear holocaust and, perhaps, and reasonable people can disagree on this, possible ecological black swans unleashed by GMOs. Historian Morris Berman, in his book The Reenchantment of the World, says, In the course of the 17th century, Western Europe hammered out a new way of perceiving reality. The most important change was the shift from quality to quantity, from why to how. The universe, once seen as alive, possessing its own goals and purposes, is now a collection of inert matter, hurrying around endlessly and meaninglessly, as Alfred North Whitehead put it. What constitutes an acceptable explanation has thus been radically altered. The acid test of existence is quantifiability, and there are no more basic realities in any object than the parts into which it can be broken down. Finally, atomism, quantifiability, and the deliberate act of viewing nature as an abstraction from which one can distance oneself all open the possibility that Bacon proclaimed as the true goal of science, control. The Cartesian or technological paradigm is, as stated above, the equation of truth with utility, with the purposive manipulation of the environment. The holistic view of man as part of nature, as being at home in the cosmos, is so much romantic claptrap. Not holism, but domination of nature. Not the ageless rhythm of ecology, but the conscious manipulation of the world. Not, to take the process to its logical endpoint, the magic of personality, but the fetishism of commodities. The poet John Donne, at the beginning of the scientific revolution in 1611, in a poem called An Anatomy of the World, says, The new philosophy calls all in doubt, Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone. Our difficult job may be to put those pieces back together. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. <laughs>